0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod visit lcef.org for more information and luther classical college a college for lutherans by lutherans opening in fall 2025 learn more at lutherclassical.org on this friday october 6th we're studying hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 in today's text The author of Hebrews invites the congregation to consider Jesus, to compare and contrast him with Moses. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as the Son. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Delighted to be here, Pastor Apple. So we get started today. Pastor Roth, talk to us about this epistle, this sermon, the one that we call Hebrews. Any context that we need to know leading up to chapter three? Hebrews
1: is utterly unique, um, first of all, because we don't know who wrote it. And so as one of the early church fathers said, God only knows. And I think we'll leave it at that. Um, It's clearly apostolic testimony, but it's constructed as a sermon. So it's unique in that respect as well. So I think it's a marvelous example of uh, early Christian preaching and uh it's it's a wonderful exposition of both law and gospel some of the sharpest law you'll find in the scriptures but then some of the most comforting gospel
0: Hmm. so what are the what are the lessons you've learned as a preacher from the, the author of hebrews oh boy
1: um i guess uh you know sometimes people do need to hear hard truths that if they you know despise the the blood of Jesus and trample the blood of the covenant under their feet, then they are at risk of losing their salvation. Um Hebrews ten will talk about how people who despise the means of grace, who uh, get into the habit, as some already had at the time, of uh, rejecting corporate worship and the, the Lord's Supper, um, are um, placing themselves in grave spiritual danger. So from that perspective, Hebrews provides the pastor with the God-sanctions privilege of saying to impenitent sinners, you know, you're in danger of losing your salvation. There's no other way than Christ alone. And so please, for the love of God, literally repent. Mm-hmm. But it also is a, a wonderful text for showing us how to read the Old Testament. So it's tremendously helped me in that respect because um, I'm currently recording the uh, the Bible in a year for my congregation and reading through the entirety of Scripture. And boy, there's some there's some, as you've discovered in sharper iron, there's some some tough passages there in the Old Testament. So Hebrews is a wonderful guide to the Old Testament, and then also it's a uh, Hebrews is great for being a pastor because you can always appeal to Hebrews 13 and say. You know, don't make your pastor's life miserable. So I, I perf- personally like that text.
0: <laughs> all right, so there's, there's a, a, a lot of wonderful material, of course, in the book of Hebrews, both for pastors and for hearers alike, to hear that strong warning of law, but also the comforting gospel, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is better than all of these things in the Old Testament, as the fulfillment we've been seeing, especially in, in chapters one and two, how Christ is superior to the angels, and how that's a very good thing for us and for our salvation. Uh, talk to us just a little bit about the context leading up to chapter 3 and, and where we start to turn here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to read a couple of the couple of verses leading up to this, because we start chapter 3 with a therefore or a hence, and so it's always crucial to recognize those connectives because there's a logical extension. So verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, Therefore he, the Son of God, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." We get the theme of him being the faithful high priest, and that's going to be absolutely crucial to the six verses that we're going to be looking at today. And then it also is important to remember that the atonement, the propitiation, that is, the turning away of God's wrath that's been accomplished by Jesus, is the presupposition for what we're going to look at in this text.
0: Hmm. All right, with those things in mind, let's take a look at this text. This is Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's our text for today. That's Hebrews chapter one, excuse me, chapter three, verses one to six. So Pastor Roth, again, we talked about the therefore and the preceding context leading up into this section. Uh, Before we get into what he says, maybe just the, the address that he speaks to this congregation, he calls them holy brothers. Talk about that. That address to the congregation. Yeah, I mentioned the uniqueness of Hebrews.
1: This is the only place in the New Testament where Christians are called holy brothers, and uh, it emphasizes then the fact that the Son became a man, so that he we can even call Jesus our big brother, um, and and so we're the family of God, the household of God, which will be an important theme here. But let's focus on that word holy. We only are holy because of the holiness of Jesus Christ, which he shares with us. We confess in the liturgy, for thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord. No man is holy apart from this man, Jesus Christ. And then he shares his holiness with us through the holy means of grace, holy baptism, holy communion, holy absolution. Um, So we share in this wonderful holiness that uh, is God's alone to give. We could even almost call holiness his Godness. Um, and we're partakers, then, as Peter puts it, of the divine nature, so that we have this tremendous union with the Holy Trinity through baptism. And so we're set apart, consecrated, and sanctified to be God's temple. Um, and this is not, um, I mean, there's moral elements to this term, but it's not fundamentally a moral admonition. It's a description of who we are in Christ. As, in the same way that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, Uh, Oftentimes, translations will say we're called to be saints, but the fact is the text says called saints. So we're already called holy by virtue of the holiness of Jesus given in our baptism
0: yeah i mean that was a that was a really big theme in the book of leviticus which we studied before the book of hebrews here on sharper iron that god is holy and he gives his holiness to his people and so the in the book of leviticus it's there's just a number of ways that god gives his holiness to his people in a way that won't kill them so it is always a gift from god something that he bestows upon us now fully given through the holy son of god our big brother jesus so that we are his holy brothers uh, thinking about that term in the context of a, a sermon as well, I think is is a, just it shows you the pastoral heart of the writer, that he's, despite all of the harsh warnings that you're thinking, maybe this guy doesn't like his congregation all that much. Still he calls them holy brothers and he preaches to them in that spirit. Absolutely, in the same way that Paul in Galatians
1: will, you know, call them saints, but then at the same time, he will say, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" You know, there's there's uh, law and gospel always proclaimed, but it's presupposed by the the, the holiness of the vocation to which we've been called.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a good a good thing for us to keep in mind as as preachers certainly, and and always as Christians living together within the church, that we live together as those who are holy brothers because of the holiness from our big brother Jesus. <laughs> So that when we you know, fall into sin, when there is need for, for words of stinging law, that we offer them in the, the spirit of love in which they are intended, and we would receive them in that same spirit of love uh, together as the holy brothers, rather than as, as enemies or those who are trying to one-up each other, no, we're, we're holy brothers in this Church together. Yeah,
1: I I always tell people in premarital instruction, you could take a Sharpie and write it on each spouse's head, you know, gift from God to the name of the other spouse, and that would constantly remind you that you're gifts to one another, same thing for Christians. We should view each other as holy. Sometimes holy people profane themselves, make themselves common and stained, but then it's our goal to, you know,
0: gently remove that speck from our brother's eye after we've pulled the log out of our own. So he says they are holy brothers, and then he also calls them those who share in a heavenly calling. How does that add to the, the thought of being holy brothers?
1: The sharing term is very interesting, because it's related to a term uh, in Greek that refers to the king's courtiers participating in management of the royal household. So there's, there is this also element of royalty and, and holiness here, and so it's a, it's a very strong word for sharing in something and then we share in a heavenly calling and that heavenly calling is can be be maybe thought of in terms of a goal but then also the the direction from which we're called so we're being called from heaven for heaven um and so it's it's it doesn't have to do with our works really it just it's a gift we have this heavenly calling and then it's pulling us upwards pressing on towards that goal to which Christ is calling us.
0: Yeah, the, the the verb that you mentioned when it comes to the sharing in this heavenly calling being connected to the royal household, I think it's something we see throughout the book of Hebrews, how Jesus brings together these offices of being our, our king and our high priest. And so just to, to see that in the verb fits very well with what he's been doing and what he continues to do in this sermon. So, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... The, the call then to this congregation, so named, is to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So maybe just I don't want to skip over it if, if there's something there for us, Pastor Roth, consider Jesus. What's what is he telling the congregation to do here? Well, he's it, yeah, every word in here is
1: just packed with with meaning. So it, it really is a text that's worth taking very slowly. Um, it just means to to contemplate, to meditate upon, and to really stop and take a very careful look at. Um, I don't think it's the same term, but you know, Jesus says, "Consider the lilies of the field." He's asking us to to really just stop and take things in. And I think, especially in our fast-paced world today, where we're distracted by so many things—social media, our phones constantly dinging—I mean, there's so many distractions. So this is a great reminder for us to just stop and In the best sense of the term, meditate upon Jesus. And and anytime we see the name Jesus, we tend to just pass by it quickly. Mm. But it's the name that means the Lord saves. It's the name given, the only name given by which men may be saved. Um, The gospel is contained in that name, Jesus. And then this epistle is going to go on to just expand on what does the name of Jesus mean to us in this phrase, by talking about him as Apostle and High Priest, and then our confession is going to be another term
0: we want to contemplate carefully. Yeah, so okay, consider Jesus, slow down, think about, give thanks for, meditate upon all that the One who saves you has done, for salvation is found only in Him, Now he is the apostle, that's the first term used here in verse 1 for Jesus. This one might strike us a little unusual, because when we as Christians hear the term apostle, typically we're thinking of the 12 men who followed Jesus. That's clearly not what it means here, so how is Jesus the apostle? So uh,
1: apostle comes from the Greek word apostello, which means to send, and so an apostle is one who is sent. And so Jesus is first and foremost sent by the Father, as we see through John's gospel, especially that verb is used of him, sent by the Father to do his Father's will, to be our our brother and our Savior. And so everything derives from Jesus. And so the apostolic ministry itself, I, I just think it's so great here how he's described as the apostle. And then we should just think of all the other apostles is uh, under apostles, you know, kind of like how the term under shepherd is used of pastors, mm-hmm. because Jesus is the great pastor, the great shepherd. So um, this is a, a, a again utterly unique. The only time the New Testament calls Jesus an apostle, but we might even say the apostle, and there is an article in the Greek, the apostle, um, and and high priest of our confession. Um, Luther commented that uh, this apostle and high priest is a wonderful way of explaining how uh, Jesus relates to us and relates to to the Father. So as the apostle to us, he is the one who is sent to reveal the will of the Father to us. As high priest, he is the one who then stands between us and the Father, and facing the Father, intercedes on our behalf.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's helpful to, to consider it that way. What, so talking right now more about that second term, that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest.
1: Yes, yeah, so this is going to be a major theme throughout the book of Hebrews, as we're going to see later on. I mean, it's going to spend, I don't know what, six chapters basically expounding on the senses in which he's um, high priest. So you'll get a full unfolding of that term. But again, to connect back to chapter two, he's the high priest in the service of God who made propitiation for the sins of the people. So that's the thing that probably sticks out the most in the immediate context. Um, and so he's the one who came to tell everyone as an apostle, this is what I'm doing, but then also revealing, here's how I'm going to do it, and here's how I'm remaining as a faithful high priest. So we'll see in verse six, he's faithful over God's house. That means he continues to do so. And the office of high priest as for Jesus, is one of ongoing significance, it's not something once and done. So you might get the impression that he was the faithful high priest who made propitiation for the sins of the people once, and for all that is
0: true, but now we have the sense of him continuing to do that on our behalf. Yeah, the the ongoing ministry of Jesus as the high priest is a very important point, as you said, for this sermon written to the Hebrews. So Jesus, we are considering him, he is the apostle, he is the high priest. Now, of our confession particularly, what kind of confession are we talking about here? So the term confession is
1: only used a few times in Hebrews, but it really is significant. And I think we should take it here more or less as uh, when Paul uses the term the faith, it's the the entirety of our Christian confession. Fundamentally, that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is our Redeemer but then all of the things that we confess about him. Um, and so this is not a subjective term here in the sense of, um, you know I'm boldly uh, uh, on a daily basis, confessing Christ to the world. That flows from the fact that the confession that's been given to us is that Jesus is our apostle and high priest. So I want to, uh, throughout this, this, these six verses, I really want to focus on the objective realities. And less on the subjective, our subjective appropriation of it and our works, and more on this is the confession of faith we've been given. And as creedal Christians, those who have uh, the, the symbols or the, the creeds of Christendom the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the, the Book of Concord we should recognize these things as having been given to us by faithful confessors before us who summarized and defended the Christian faith and handed these things down to us. So we can actually point to an objective thing to say, this is my confession. And baptism is a major theme in, in the book of Hebrews, this cleansing, this washing. And in the early church, before people were baptized, they made a confession of faith, not one that they had come up with on their own. The Greek word homolo- homologia, which is, we translate as confession, literally means to say the same thing back. So it's related to, in confession of sins, God says you're a sinner, and so I just say back to God, I poor, miserable sinner. God says, I'm the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We say back to him, I, am, uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, so this is a gift.
0: So, and then with Jesus being the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, in that objective sense, the faith that we have been given, the faith that we believe, Does this, what I mean? I'm thinking about as you brought up the Lutheran confessions. The Lutheran confessions are centered on giving us to Jesus. So the confession that we have finds its center then in Jesus. It always points back to him and what he has done. Is that something we see from these verses? Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting that
1: if you think in terms of the small catechism as, uh, uh, what is the center of the small catechism? We talk about the six chief parts, but really the way the catechism is structured is Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, and then you could actually take the sacraments and put them under the third article of the creed. And if you do it that way, then the second article of the creed is the center of the catechism. And I think that's the right way of understanding it. So again, this is just consider Jesus, consider the second article, means the same
0: thing. Hmm. All right, so the, the writer addresses his holy brothers who share in heavenly calling with him to consider Jesus. Jesus is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest, the one who has made propitiation for our sins and continues to intercede for us of our confession. He is the center of this Christian faith that we have been given. Now in verse 2, he continues to describe Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Take us into that next phrase there in verse 2.
1: Yeah, and this is really interesting because Dr. Kleinig, who wrote the commentary on Hebrews for the Concordia commentary series, uh, translates this as is faithful. And so I, I think grammatically you probably could translate it either way. But Dr. Kleinig points out that uh, because Jesus is the high priest, we already mentioned this ongoing significance of being him being high priest. So uh, Dr. Kleinig understands it as he is the one who is faithful to him who appointed him as high priest. And I I find that very comforting because it's not just a once and done thing. This is Jesus who is still at the right hand of the Father pleading for us. We can go to our big brother with all of our, our petitions and complaints, and then he takes them to the Father on a continuous basis. The term faithful, of course, then means that he was trustworthy. He received from his Father the things entrusted to him but then he actually executed those things right down to the letter. So we have the sense of Christ's active, active righteousness here. So we speak of his passive righteousness, righteousness being that which he suffered on the cross for our redemption, but his active righteousness and fulfilling God's law perfectly. And it's worth mentioning here, the threefold offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, and uh, Jesus fulfills all of those things perfectly. Um, and one of the appointed roles of the high priest was to keep God's law, to enact the laws that were given for the, the sacrifices at the temple. Um, and so we can, you know, there's, there's at least three other things you could speak of in terms of high priests, but Jesus is the one who actively fulfills God's law, just as the priests in the Old Testament fulfilled God's law for the people.
0: Mm. So Jesus is this faithful high priest, and he's faithful to him who appointed him, so I, I think this would be the Father. Talk about the significance of the, the Father appointing Jesus to this role.
1: Right. So he's the utterly unique Son who's going to fulfill all these offices, and uh, it's important here to, to emphasize that Jesus didn't uh, you know, take this ministry upon himself, he's the specific chosen one. I think appointed has that sense very clearly of chosen, which then also is, uh, we're going to see the term Christ in a little while, and a Christ is going to be a chosen one. Um, so this, this is not Jesus uh, doing things on his own, but as he talks about in the Gospel of John, um, he only does the things that his Father has given him to do. He sees what the Father does, and then he does that for us.
0: Hmm. And I, I think when it comes to the matter of, of being appointed, that there's an element of, of certainty that's given in this, so that when we see Jesus, who is fully human, as he is also fully divine, to know that he's the one who's been appointed by the Father to do these things and didn't just take these things upon himself, it gives us that certainty that he is, in fact, the one who is able to do all these things and to be the apostle, the high priest of our confession, because it's not something he came up with, but it's actually something that God the Father has appointed him to, and that gives it the, the certainty and the authenticity.
1: Right. As Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. There's really nowhere else to go.
0: So Jesus is this faithful high priest, the one faithful to the Father who appointed him, and that is where the writer of Hebrews brings up, for the first time in this passage, Moses. He says, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So, got about 2 minutes here before the break, Pastor Roth begin to introduce us to things that we need to know about Moses as we consider this passage.
1: Well, Moses wasn't someone who uh chose to do the work either, right? He was
0: appointed by God and as we
1: know from uh, Exodus, he was pretty reluctant in his initial uh his initial calling to to be the mouthpiece and then um uh, Over God's house. Um, So we actually do see, if we go back and read the Old Testament, the deficiencies of Moses. So Hebrews portrays him fairly positively here, um, but we might actually look at it and say, well, maybe maybe he wasn't quite so faithful there. So we're reminded then that Moses is inferior um, to Jesus in that respect. But nonetheless, Moses is counted by the Old Testament and New Testament as one who did faithfully. Pass the words of God to the people, and then organize the people, lead the people. Um, so he and and uh, we then get the the term God's house, and so we see house here stands in not only for the tabernacle where Moses would go in and talk with God and come back out showing God's glory even glowed, um, but also the sense of the Old Testament Israel being God's house, the place where He dwelt. And he was—he shared his holiness with his people.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think about Moses, and and consider the the breadth of, or the the width of his life, you know, as you said, there's a number of places where he doesn't measure up. But here, the author compares him to Jesus and reminds us of the faithfulness that Moses had in God's house. And we're going to see how Jesus is is faithful and as he will continue to say, even better than Moses, does much more than Moses. We'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Carl Roth this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
2: Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right! LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 6th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we were looking at verse two where the writer of hebrews says that moses also was faithful in all god's house and we we're making the point that throughout moses's life there are moments where he's not so faithful but the author emphasizes especially his faithfulness here and, and really when you consider moses as a figure in the old testament i do think that that is something that you see come through in a variety of aspects that that there's something about moses there's a role that he plays that You know other prophets just they're always kind of living in his shadow it seems that that he he has this unique role among god's people at that time and even going forward into the old testament as as one who is faithful how do how do we see that in the old testament in those books of moses that that he has that unique place in the history and unique interactions with god even right so in this
1: passage from hebrews the author is actually alluding to and paraphrasing Numbers 12, verse 7. And so the context of that is is significant for showing the distinctiveness of Moses. In that context, Miriam and Aaron had sort of rebelled against their brother and challenged his authority and said, God speaks through us too. And and at that point, the Lord calls all three of them to stand at the entrance to the temple. The Lord appears in glory and he speaks to them and there he says some remarkable things about Moses. He says that Moses, unlike the other prophets that he had shown shown visions and dreams to, actually spoke with, with Moses, the, the Lord spoke with Moses mouth to mouth, face to face, and then Moses actually beheld the form of Yahweh, or the glory of the Lord. So the Lord there shows that Moses is his appointed one, his special prophet that he's going to give the holy law through and full revelation and messianic prophecies. And so Miriam and Aaron actually need to stand down, because this is the guy that the Lord has chosen, and he was also
0: faithful over the Lord's house in what the Lord had given him to do. Hmm. You know, Thinking about the Lord speaking mouth to mouth with Moses, I think it becomes important as we think about Jesus as superior to Moses, especially the way that this this whole sermon opened up. That long ago, in, in various ways, God spoke to the people by his prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Uh, thinking about Jesus as superior in that sense, I think there's a, a connection to be made. So we've got that Old Testament background here in Hebrews 3, verse 2, that just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Now let's keep considering Jesus with the writer of Hebrews. In verse 3, "...for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself." So a number of things that we can talk about. The word glory stands out, especially in the, the context of Moses and the tabernacle. There, You have this picture of the, the builder and a house, and which one has more honor or glory. A number of things to unpack here in this verse, Pastor Roth.
1: Yeah, I, and I also would like to invoke John 1, where we hear that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth mm-hmm. came through Jesus Christ. Sometimes Lutherans are tempted to take that to mean that the law is not good you know, because the law always accuses us, but that's not really the sense there. The law of Moses, which was, well, the law given through Moses was a good thing. It was the Torah. It was a blessing. It had law and gospel in it. But the point of that verse is that grace and truth that comes through Jesus is greater. That's exactly parallel to what's happening here. Um, What Moses did, he was faithful in God's house, the old testament um, covenant was a good thing it was a blessing it was a necessary thing but now we've got something better so we we the book of hebrews is very clear that later on especially when it talks about the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant something greater is here so we as christians should realize as we read the old testament that it was preparatory and Moses pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, just as Abraham saw the, the glory of Jesus. And now that we have Jesus, we can't read the Old Testament in exactly the same way. We do have to view it as preparatory, and so there's wonderful gifts to be found in there. But grace and truth now, in fullness, has come through Jesus Christ.
0: Hmm. So talk more about this thought of, of glory. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. I mean, the you, know, you the Moses experienced the glory of the Lord in, in ways that I mean he he shown when he came out of the Lord's presence and speaking to him he got to see the you know the Lord passed by him and he saw the the backside of the Lord's glory. Jesus has more glory than that. Talk about this this thought of glory connected to Moses and Jesus. I think the the central point here is
1: that with Jesus, uh, he receives more honor because the glory of the Lord actually dwells in him. So as the divine Son. Um, he, you know, not only is, is glorified and praised by human beings, but he actually possesses and is the glory of the Lord. Um, so the book of Hebrews again and again emphasizes the divine, the divine nature of Jesus, his sonship. Uh, so this, this is, is shocking to an Old Testament believer who would, you know, be like, well, nobody was closer to God than Moses. Now we're actually realizing, wow. The lord has actually come in the flesh of jesus christ that's the glory of the lord has appeared
0: hmm, yeah now I, I know i know pastor roth that that at grace and elgin you use the the one-year lectionary and so when you get to transfiguration sunday earlier than those of us who use the three-year lectionary you you hear the same old testament reading regularly one of the Old Testament—or excuse me, Epistle readings, the one that I want to focus on—this this text from Hebrews 3 shows up on Transfiguration one year out of the three-year lectionary, which I, I think invites us to consider the, the Transfiguration and the, the glory that's there seen in Jesus, and Moses is there on the mountain, and, and when Peter wants to build the three tents, you know, what does the, the father, Father's voice say? This is my Son, listen to Him, yeah. and he puts Moses in the background there in that scene of, of who has glory and, and what that glory is.
1: Oh, exactly. Well, we get uh, in the one-year series, 2 Peter, which talks about the uh, the eyewitness testimony of Peter, that they got to behold his glory. And we see this, you know, you don't get the transfiguration in John's gospel, but in John 1, it says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, this is a marvelous text uh, uh, for, for the transfiguration, uh, because it does show us that... Uh, and it also harkens back to uh, the prophecy from Deuteronomy that the prophet, like Moses, would come, and it's to him you should listen. Here we actually see that that prophet is going to be greater than Moses.
0: Not yeah. just like Moses, but actually greater than Moses. Yeah, yeah. So so Jesus, again, greater than Moses, has more glory than Moses. And the way that the the writer of Hebrews explains this is by comparing it to a a house that's being built and... And which has more honor, which has more glory, the builder or the house? That's the the second part of verse three. Take us into this brief example that he gives.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that you know the house I live in, I don't think twice about who built it uh, because I get so preoccupied with with all the stuff around. But uh, I was thinking, uh, I don't know anything about architects or architecture, but the name Frank Lloyd Wright stuck out, and you know people will actually travel across the country to see houses that were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, because he was so well-known, famous, and um, I don't really have an opinion on his architecture, but he's, he's, a, he's a famous one. In that sense, then he has you know more glory than the house itself, because people don't go there just because it's a house, but because of the person who designed it. Um, and th- this is a great reminder then that we creatures get really um, focused on uh, the creation, and then maybe lose sight of the Creator. But every time we look at the marvelous world that God has created, we should realize that the heavens declare His glory. Um, the you know it proclaims His handiwork, uh, and that uh, we should focus less on the the creation as it is, and more on the fact that this is a marvelous design that God has built.
0: Hmm. And thinking about the language of of house and the one who's built the house having more glory, with that thought, as you brought up earlier, that when it comes to being a part of God's house, we have maybe both Israel and the thought of the tabernacle, particularly when it comes to the context of Moses. With the builder having more glory than the house, I mean, does that... I'm, I'm thinking through the way that you have the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the temple, but then that temple gets destroyed, and Jesus comes along and says, you know, you're gonna you're gonna kill me and I'll rebuild the temple in three days that he's the temple. Is there is there something to that progression that Jesus as the builder of the house, like that's why the the tabernacle and temple finally go away, because it wasn't about the building so much as pointing to the one who who dwelt in that building and now dwells among us in the flesh.
1: Yeah, that's a major theme in Hebrews later on when it talks about the insufficiency of the the fleshly um, uh, or, or temporal tabernacle, that it was all provisional, it was all temporary, and that it wasn't the main point, but that it's merely a copy of the temple in heaven where the real action went on and was pointing forward to those things. Um, but now that we get to look behind the curtain and see what's really going on in God's house in heaven. Where Jesus has poured out His blood and made the sacrifice for us, um, and then we're participants and members of that household. That's where the real
0: joy is. Yeah, yeah, and that, again, thinking about Moses' role, you know, he's the one who receives the instructions for the tabernacle, and and yet he does so in preparation for what Christ will do. As as you said, going thinking about the heavenly temple, which we'll get into later in this letter for or sermon to the Hebrews. So in verse 4, you started, I think, to move us in that direction, because we talk about not only the builder of the house, particularly the temple, but now, maybe more generally, it seems, in verse 4, the ESV puts this in, in parentheses, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Is that a parenthetical note, or how does that fit into the, the greater argument here? It is not a parenthetical note. Um, many
1: commentators and translations of the Bible look at this as kind of a cliche, like kind of a intelligent design, you know, kind of throwaway line. But what you really need to focus on is the builder of all things is God. So there it emphasizes, not just the created things that we see, but all things encompasses all the stuff that he's done for us in Christ, old Testament and new Testament. So if you read the words carefully, you realize. Oh, wow, there's something really significant going on here. So it's a, a good reminder, just like the headings at the beginning of each section that you read in the Bible, that's a man-made construction. All the punctuation is is uh, devised by man as well. So let's uh, let's really rejoice in the fact that God is the one who designed all things according to creation, redemption, and sanctification.
0: so this this is really a profound verse. Hmm. All right, so to take the parentheses off of this verse, understand the, the fullness of what the writer of Hebrews is, is giving us, and again, all centered in Jesus as the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. I mean, we want to keep the, the focus on, on Jesus. That's where the writer of Hebrews is. is point. How does verse 4 help keep that focus on Jesus? Because it maybe does seem a little more distant, but I, I think in the context... This is inviting us to consider Jesus' role. I think it takes us back to verse 2, uh,
1: where it says Jesus is the apostle and high priest who is faithful to him who appointed him. So God has appointed and furnished all things in the creation.
0: So that, that echoes verse 2. Hmm. Yeah, well, and and you, you brought up John 1 before, and, and there in John 1, verse 3, that everything that was mm-hmm. made is made through the word there's nothing that has been made that that he did not have a role in and so as the word as the faithful son jesus is active in building all things as the as the creator of all things so then in as the writer continues into verse five moses is brought back up again and now we're going to get a little bit more of a contrast here so now moses was faithful in all god's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later." Talk to us about Moses' faithfulness in God's house as a servant, as described here.
1: Yeah, you could translate this as steward. And so we do want to make the distinction here that this is not the term for slave doulos, which we see so often in the scriptures. Um, No, Moses was a steward. That is somebody who really had authority in the house of God. Um, He's This is almost a repetition of, well, it's actually an allusion again to Numbers 12. Um, it's it's almost a repeat of verse 2, so we already got that. But but it's emphasizing here that he's a steward, but then in the next verse we're going to see the contrast with Christ. But I, But let's not forget the phrase, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So embedded in the work of Moses is prophecy of Christ and what he was going to come to, do, uh, come to do. So I mentioned Deuteronomy 18, which is a very specific messianic prophecy. Um, so here, here we kind of get a sense of Moses glorifying Jesus, because he's the one who was appointed by God to talk about him in advance.
0: Hmm. Well, then I, I think this verse then helps us to, to rightly understand you know, you brought up again, John 1.17, that, that the law was given through Moses. When we think about Moses' role, and sometimes we do call him the lawgiver, it doesn't mean that he only spoke the commands of God that condemned us. When, when Moses wrote and when Moses preached, he was finally proclaiming Christ. Everything that he was doing was pointing to Christ. And so, well, yeah, you were the one that pointed this out to me one time in the in the hymn, when all the world was cursed, uh, St. John the Baptist is called a preacher of, of consolation, of good news, and we don't often think of John the Baptist as a preacher of consolation. I don't think we think of Moses as a preacher of consolation, usually, either, but I think this verse helps us to, to understand that when we read Moses, we can have consolation in the words that he, he preached.
1: Well, absolutely. Look at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You know, when he... Moses is the one who heard that word from the Lord, but then declared it to the people the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, right, forgiving iniquities. So there's just, I mean, proportionally more gospel in Moses than there probably is in the New Testament, if you're just going to look at sheer material, right? So it's abounding with good news, especially the good news of the Son coming eventually, the prophet like Moses, um, to whom we should listen. And he's the one who then says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay, so Moses' faithfulness is as a steward, one who is given to care for the things that don't belong to him, and and Moses does so faithfully, testifying to things to come later, testifying to Christ who follows him, and that's where the writer of Hebrews takes us. Now, in its verse six, he says, "But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son." Now, lest we skip over it, this is the the first time in this text. That he names Jesus or calls him Christ using this title. Talk just a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that uh, Dr. Kleinig's comments on this are illuminating, because we tend to automatically think of Christ as king, but in the Old Testament it was um, kings and priests, and I think in some cases prophets. Am I wrong on that? That were there's anointed.
0: at least a couple cases yeah. of a prophet being anointed. Yes. Yeah.
1: So I mean, but fundamentally kings and priests were anointed. And so Dr. Kleiner really emphasizes here, this is Christ in the sense of him being anointed as high priest. I'm not sure you could exclude the king. I don't think you would exclude the king element from it because Christ is one word and it refers to the God's son. But I do think the emphasis here is on him being the faithful high priest over God's house, which is exactly what we saw back in chapter two. Um, So let's not forget then Christ means anointed chosen, appointed, and not only king, but also
0: priest. Hmm. So Christ, this one, is faithful now, not just in God's house, but over God's house. That change in preposition seems significant. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so Moses was a steward in the house, right? And now Christ is the steward, well, he's the son, as we'll see over yeah. God's house so that's just
0: a tremendous upping of uh, from Moses to Jesus so and then he is is faithful over God's house yeah. as a not as a steward but as a son just put the whole picture together for us
1: well he is the uh, anointed appointed son in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily um, who has done it all for us um, unlike the Old Testament high priest who had to you know, offer sacrifices for them for their own sins and for the sins of others. He's the one who once and for all has uh, offered himself as the spotless, stainless sacrifice for the sins of the entire world, and now, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, as the the Son in the Father's household intercedes for us continually.
0: Hmm. I mean, and I know you said that the word for servant here is not the word for doulos, servant, slave. But the, the thought that Moses as a steward compared to Christ as a son, we're getting close to the Reformation, you have that text from John 8, where if it's the son who sets you free, then you're free indeed. If you have the son, you are an heir, not, not only a—I know it's not the word for slave here, but it seems that, that the fact that he's the son over the house it invites then us to receive, as, as we'll see, we are his house. There's something for us here in this.
1: Yeah, and it actually leads perfectly into the rest of this this verse, because this status as free sons, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Uh, this status as free sons is going to give us uh, unfettered access to the Father. And uh, I mentioned earlier the subjective, objective sort of senses. We, we're going to read confidence and boasting in kind of a subjective way. This is the way we tend to hear it, but we're going to see something really remarkable it's closely related to the identity we
0: have as holy brothers, free sons of God in Christ Jesus. So to help us into the, the rest of this verse, then, we are his house. Talk about that again, the we are his house now. Oh, boy, there's so many passages
1: in the New Testament that really emphasize this. I of point, especially to Ephesians, where it talks about we're, we're being built up as a house of God by the Holy Spirit. So it just means uh, again that we're in the, the the family of God, the temple of God, which is Christ Jesus' own body. So the body of Christ imagery comes out, um, and then also these the um, duties and responsibilities we have within a household. You know, we're in a sense stewards, and then also servants of one another. Um, so it, it you, you could just say that this is a way of summarizing what it means to be saved, um, to be brought out of the devil's domain of darkness into the household of God as free children.
0: So what does that look like then, if we are his house? We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Well, again, let's take this one at a time. We hold fast our confidence.
1: Well, uh, the verb hold fast here has the sense of cling to, hold on to, but it's not um, in the sense of acquiring it. Right, so it's not the sense that we reach out, grab it, and then take it for ourselves. It's more like something that's been placed into our hands, into our laps, and then we just hug it. We hold on to it tightly, and so this this is that um, that Christian sense of um, clinging to the Lord and realizing that He's our highest good and not letting go and grasping for
0: idols. Um, so that, that don't want to pass over that verb too quickly confidence or sure, maybe yeah go ahead well maybe just with the idea of holding fast you know a gift being placed into your lap and and thinking of Jesus telling us to receive the kingdom of god like little children when you place the the gift into the lap of the little child the little child just hugs that gift tight and doesn't let go i mean oh, i think yeah. that's that's a good picture of what we're seeing here
1: Absolutely. And when, when one of their siblings comes and tries to take it away from them,
0: man, they they double
1: down, you know, they hold on even tighter. So that's no, right. that's, that's a really that's good right. image for what we're doing. We're just stubbornly clinging to this thing as
0: this is a m- wonderful gift that I've received. Um, that's right. So we hold fast in our confidence.
1: Yeah. And so uh, I mentioned subjective, right? So confidence, it, it tends, we tend to think of it in terms of like, well, I well, we often ter- use the term self-confidence, right? Which is really not a good idea. Um, uh, but we we tend to think of confidence as something we have within ourselves. But this is an objective term. So in Greek, it's parasia. And uh, the classic um, usage of this was in in ancient Greece, and and it was it was it meant free speech. Um, it meant the privilege of a free citizen to speak frankly in the public assembly. Uh, it also could speak of uh, this frankness with which spouses could speak to one another, and so it's it's really a gift. It's a privilege of having the opportunity to speak. In contrast to a slave, for example, who or or think about soldiers, right? Um, um, we've been watching a show about um, the military, and so when a lower officer wants to address an older uh, or a higher officer, he'll say, "Permission to speak, sir." Right, so they have to actually seek permission. This Z is actually a permanent sense of permission that we have to speak frankly with our Father. Um, I think this ties in really nicely with the uh, to, to take it to the most extreme uh, example: the lament psalms that deal with our complaining to God. You know, it feels impetuous even to say those those um, those yeah. complaints to the Lord. Shouldn't we just have to knuckle under and you know? Do, submit ourselves to His will. No, the Psalms open our voices to actually go so far as uh, complaining to Him, and so it's only by this gift of parousia, or a confidence that we are given, that we can speak to our Father um, so frankly.
0: And then the last part, this, we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Helps into the last phrase.
1: Yeah. And so the boasting here doesn't mean that we're braggarts. Um, it's rather that we're taking what God has given us, and then we're pointing to that as boasting. In the same sense that um, you know, praising God doesn't deal so much with telling Him how awesome He is, but rather telling other people about how great He is, this boasting is, is closely related to praise. We're taking the marvelous deeds of the Lord that He's done to save us, and we're sharing them with other people and you know, boasting that this has been a gift given to me, but it's
0: also one for you. Yeah, and then he says that is a boasting in our hope. We have about a minute left. Use that that thought that we're boasting in our hope to help us wrap up this morning.
1: Well, as I never tire of uh, saying, the term hope uh, in in modern English is is rather wishy-washy and fuzzy. Um, I hope it doesn't doesn't rain tomorrow and spoil my birthday party, but I have no idea whether it's going to happen or not. One of the other ways of translating the term elpis in Greek is expectation. So we hold on to the expectation of what God has promised. So even now, this hope is not uncertain. It is sure it is rock solid because it is guaranteed by the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who makes glorious promises to us and says, whoever believes
0: in me and is baptized shall be saved. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews chapter 3, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.